Thank you for the invitation. Um, okay, so ensuing from the kind of poignant simplicity of statements such as this um, from Layla, who was talking about her own illness, today I'm going to think a little bit about anorexia and its intersections with care and comfort. Um, so we know that anthropological work on eating very widely has re reflected on relationships between food and care. So people have thought about nurturing and commensality and relationality in relation to food, whilst also highlighting how these can be very fraught and coerced and extremely political. <coughs> um, so Megan Warren, for example, has recently talked about sugar in this context, talked about the, the way in which sweetness, eating sweet foods, can be a way of uh, caring for the self and how this challenges sort of public health discourses. Um, and cultural theorist Laura Burlum, for example, has suggested that eating is, what she says, um, one of the few spaces of controllable, reliable pleasure people have, whilst it may also be motivated by stress or a desire for self-medication. So against that kind of background, I started to think about, with obviously quotes like that in mind, um, a little bit about self-starving as self-care. And it sounds controversial, it sounds counterintuitive, and it sounds rather unpleasant, I, I get all that. Um, but it comes up again and again and again in our narratives. So I'm going to be asking today, why and how does not eating mobilise or engender care? And this is part of, as Corinne said, a wider collaboration with Emma Jane Abbott's around eating and caring and the intersections, very political intersections of those. And it also relates to my work on caregiving as a kind of the forms of caregiving in mental health. But I suppose more specifically, it's part of my ongoing work on anorexia that began with my PhD and has continued. And mainly in that, I've thought about pro-anorexia. So that kind of desire to hold on to the illness that people talk about, the participants talk about. So with that in mind, I think reflecting on entanglements between food and care and anorexia, as I'm going to be doing for the next kind of half an hour, um, constitutes um, a kind of desire for an analysis of anorexia that both engages with the lived vulnerabilities of material bodies and suffering selves, whilst also going beyond this kind of focus on emaciation as this kind of goal-orientated thing of anorexia. <coughs> it's kind of focus on practices and day-to-day -day ways of being. And in this aim, it aligns with other work on anorexia, such as Corinne's, um, Megan Warren's, Rebecca Lester's. But my point today is also, importantly, not to ignore the enormous suffering that anorexia can cause, or assume that practices of not eating are either kind of fully agential or entirely lacking in agency. There is no doubt that eating disorders are, as uh, Bob Palmer, who's a clinician, has put it, frequently miserable and life-blighting. Blighting. I have to edit that bit out. Blighting. <laughs> um, but they also emerge from some research participants' narratives as integral to selfhood and a way of living through the everyday. So although it is kind of really viscerally clear why, to borrow from uh, Frank, the story of illness that trumps all others is the clinical, this paper argues that there are kind of other stories we need attending to. An attention to not eating as caring in the face of compromised conditions of possibility offers a way to take account of subjectivities and lived experiences of anorexia, one that pays attention to embodied and processual present moments of living with and within the illness. So I think what I think I'm going to try and do is that exploring such entanglements kind of traces the texture and the sociality of not eating practices 
And that allows anorexia's clinical realities, horrible, painful clinical realities, to remain acknowledged but bracketed in order that other narratives may be heard. So to engage with these other narratives, I'm going to draw on two studies. Um, one was my PhD fieldwork in an eating disorders inpatient unit back in 2008. And one we're doing in Birmingham, which is an interview study <coughs> with um, people who are treated through day patient, inpatient and outpatient services in Birmingham. And that's um, starting in 2013 and we're just kind of finishing the interviews now. So I'm first going to think about the way in which anorexia looks after you, before thinking about how it's also conceptualised possibly as a way of looking after others. But to do this, we therefore first need to think about and engage with what anorexia is in uh, participants' accounts. So when I asked what anorexia was to her, Tammy recounted how it was never a kind of deliberate diet to lose weight or anything like that. She said it was more of a kind of not wanting to eat and regaining control over that. And in her interview, Josie described her self-starvation as a distraction and an escape from the real world. She said it was something to focus on that didn't hurt. And I could, she said I could control it when I couldn't sort out some of the other issues. So what's begun to emerge from, um, from Josie's and Tammy's narratives is a sense of not eating as offering a way of numbing oneself in the face of other distress. And this is recognised in the current literature, particularly in psychological literature. Anorexia has been described as a coping strategy in which controlling one's eating serves as a means of kind of coping with stress, exerting control. But these accounts of escaping from the real world, as Josie puts it, also suggest that the numbness offered by anorexia kind of goes beyond the control of emotions, I think. So by letting the anorexia take up your mind, as Josie puts it, there would seem to be this kind of a gentle absenting of the self from the present moment, the present moment of pain, I think, is what we see here, through the illness. So in her interview, Claudine said, for example, I just want to stop thinking. And yet in this sense of absence, of zoning out, that we, it's that. It's in that, I think, that we begin to see that anorexia is not just about self-loss and numbness for participants. There is more to say here. There is this kind of slippage between zoning out through anorexia, described by Claudine, and the illness as a space to zone into. So anorexia was described by participants as my space, and another as my little bubble, with Amelia saying... It's almost like it's a world that you live in that's separate from everybody else. And in her interview, Nita described the spatiality in terms of safety. She said that anorexia had been her safety net for so long that removing it would be the scariest thing in the world. And the sense of anorexia as a safe space that offers retreat is reminiscent of Ellen Corrin, who's an anthropologist who's done a lot of work around psychosis, it's reminiscent of her descriptions of positive withdrawal in psychosis. So she talks about how um, withdrawal is not just a kind of negative symptom. You can say that's the psychosis. She talks about how it's, it's kind of a gentle way of withdrawing to, in order to defend an inner space through the construction of a kind of psychic skin. So it's sitting within this space, almost as a form of self-healing and being. And I think reflecting on anorexia as itself a form of psychic skin illustrates that the illness as a space of numbness or of retreat is not empty. 
There is not just absence here. This is not just about absence, but also about presence and an alternative subjectivity of space and being. This is the space for and of self-hosting participants' narratives. While also, importantly, being recognised, many people do recognise this, um, as a sport, as a space forged through illness. <clears throat> so people say, I know, I know this is an illness, but it is my space to be in, and this is how I live. And as such, we see selfhood here not simply as suspended or held or trapped, which is clinical, common clinical parlance, within anorexia. Rather, I think it manifests, to borrow Claudine's word, within and with the illness. And this, like Nita's later questioning in her interview of, I don't know what I would be without anorexia, what would I be? This evinces a kind of intersubjective fusion, to borrow from Jackson, with the illness that runs through many participants' narratives. So I've explored more widely in my work how anorexia is a presence that is kind of both dependent on but also much greater than starvation practices. And I think that little snapshot of it as a kind of safe space to be oneself in or inside perhaps does illustrate this. Acknowledging anorexia as a presence in this way alters the way we look at self-starvation. It shows that not eating does not simply constitute a lack in anorexia, rather it, com it comprises continual work in order to engender relationships of absence with food through which anorexia is continually maintained day by day. But what this tells us, if we place that in the same analytical space as these narratives of safety and selfhood, just noted, is that if practices of not eating maintain anorexia, they also maintain me as a sense of self, is the way people put it. They keep me safe and here. And it's this that underpins the kind of albeit ambivalent desire to actively maintain anorexia that runs through so many research participants' narratives. But it also importantly frames not eating as a modality of self-care, of self-care through this other, perhaps, through the illness. You look after anorexia so that it continues to look after you, as Leila put it. And this elucidates how to participants the illness can be at once an illness, and yet also an albeit extremely painful way of being, as living through anorexia emerges from narratives as a way of living through more widely. So as such, if the act of caring crafts more bearable ways of living with or in reality, as Anne-Marie Moll has put it, then self-care through anorexia frames the illness as offering a space in which to be both self and other, absent and present as needed. As, uh, <coughs> as Elisa put it, it's become part of me and part of my routine. Now I think this mention of routine is interesting because it moves us beyond this sense of Anorexia is looking after you by offering you this moment of sort of stillness and safety to sit within. It moves us to, towards thinking of it as a kind of way to do things, and the relational directionality of that is therefore different. Where the former was about kind of retreat, the latter's about coming out into the world but through the illness, so it accompanying you. So if you talk about, for example, it holds my hand, it's there when I need it to be. So Kate described anorexia, for example, as how I do things. You do it quietly, you do it on your own. And these descriptions afford a glimpse into how, to participants, anorexia may be a way of mapping the space of the present moment. It mediates how participants encounter the worlds around them. 
And if we think about it like that, if therefore, if caring comprises persistent tinkering in a world full of complex ambivalence and shifting tensions, as Anne-Marie Moll has also argued, um, anorexia offers a way of caring for the self that navigates through the world for you. Thus, not eating as self-caring precisely holds onto and reproduces an illness that offers a way to withdraw from or interact with one's surrounding social world. And the safety in anorexia's dual stilling and also mediating of the spaces of the present moment is contrasted in some accounts with the uncertainty signified by the future. So as Elisa put it, big quote I know, but she said, um, you don't quite know what the future holds. And to her, it was, that was very much what emphasised um, anorexia's safety, that I'm okay here now. Yet, as anorexia maps and mediates the present, it may also not offer any other temporality. Caring through not eating offers stillness and stasis with all the kind of real ambiguity that that word stasis um, is kind of embedded with. Because there's obviously a huge precariousness to anorexia as a modality of self-care. It's, it's a safe space that is potentially consuming. So Josie illustrated this in her interview by saying, I just felt like I wasn't existing. So she's now in treatment, she was looking back. And this kind of slippage from that space of selfhood to a space of effacement was also described by Lacey, who said that the process from one to the other was like rolling down a slope. But despite the distress expressed at this sense of a loss of agency to and sometimes betrayal by anorexia, people talk about it as, I thought it was my friend and it betrayed me, participants do not always wish to go up this particular modality of self-care. And the way of being in the world, but, um, and the way of, kind of being in the world, but also inside anorexia at the same time that it affords. Rather, their narratives often, and often evince an accommodation to the ways in which caring may be a deeply painful activity. And this was clear in Hadia's interview. So when she recounted how she would sometimes just sit, and as she put it, be alone with anorexia. So they just sit there and we're just there together, both of us. But she described feeling safe and okay in this space. But then she said, sometimes she would feel that her anorexia would become sort of too strong and then actually it would start filling up that space and it would push her out and she started feeling that it was therefore engulfing her but in order to kind of care for herself within this kind of entrapment and engulfment Hadia didn't want to get rid of her anorexia instead she talked about how she wanted to work harder at not eating to processually reproduce the space of her illness and kind of align herself with it so she wanted to get back a particular safe anorexia, is the way she talked of it. And it was arguably, therefore, her experience of anorexia's narrowing of possibility that led Hadia to continually reinvent this as her space. And in this, I think she illustrates that people very much make do with what they have, to borrow from Deserto, whilst also showing that anorexia as a mode of self-care could be regarded, following Plato and Derrida, as a pharmacon. It's not only both remedy and poison at once, very clearly, but I think also it's arguably remedy for its own poison, so it's very, very cyclical. And it's perhaps this, alongside both the distress and intermittent loss of agency in participants' lived experiences of anorexia, that most problematises an idea of the illness as a form of caring for the self. But it's also these that underpin its importance. 
evincing the double doubledness encapsulated by the preposition through. Self-care through anorexia sees anorexia as at once a vector of caring, but also something that is difficult to live through. These become kind of enfolded as participants like Hadia work harder to catch up with anorexia so that it may continue to look after them. The illness is thus, to borrow from Fisher, um, a way to live with what would otherwise be unendurable, where that unendurable may very much be cause and effect at once. But although anorexia is kind of skin and space and particularly retreat seem very derelational, very disconnected, um, there's also a complex sociality to many participants' narratives that sees care of the self through anorexia entwined with the illness as a way of caring for others. <coughs> and returning to Ellen Cohen's metaphor of psychic skin illuminates this sense of connection as well as disconnection. As Michel Serres reminds us, skin is porous and he talks about in it, through it, with it, the world and my body touch each other. And so now, last little bit, I'm going to think a little bit about caring for others through anorexia. So in her interview, Rashida described how she had begun to self-starve after her father had been hospitalised for a terminal illness during her childhood. She really poignantly, painfully recounted having watched him as she put it shrinking away and feeling that if she could just eat less than him, everything would be all right as long as she was smaller than he was. Things would be okay, she said. And likewise, Elisa said of her sister's hospitalisation when they were children, ah, that's totally the wrong place. <laughs> oh well. Um, I would have preferred it was me to be ill. Is that on there? Yeah. Oh well. It was just a bit premature. Um, so, both Rashida and Elisa's accounts echoed the discussions earlier of not eating as a modality of gaining control, particularly in emotionally distressing situations. But they also evince the kind of painful partiality of such control, as not eating may successfully map and maintain this kind of space forged inside anorexia, but it suddenly seems very powerless beyond this. We might therefore be tempted to suggest that it is here that we are confronted with the limits of conceptualising or even experiencing anorexia as caring. But reflecting on participants' narrative shows that not eating is set to work here in a way that performs caring about others. In contrast to explorations of the caring implicit in commensality and kind of sharing food, Rashida and Elisa's narratives frame the sharing of a lack of food as engendering threads of care between bodies and persons. And if care is at once, as Joan Tronto, who's done a lot of work around an ethic of care, if, it's, if care is at once, as she puts it, both a practice and a disposition, and I think earlier in terms of self-care, I, I explored practices, care emerges here as a very much an embodied disposition. In their felt powerlessness to care for their family members in any other way, to map the future or indeed the present, their loved ones, Rashida and Lisa entangle their bodies into a kind of performance of care, enacting a mimetic alignment. Elisa's words, which are here now, that she would have preferred it was her to be ill, frame her not eating as a somatic mode of attention, to borrow from Shordas. And that this may be at once attentive and yet not necessarily fully agential resonates through Elisa's words. 
and elucidates that not eating may be a way of caring about in the, ability, in the kind of face of an absolute inability to care for. So although Rashida and Elise's performances of care are embedded in the intimacies of familial relations, a similar mimetic alignment of suffering bodies but across geographical distances also occurs in quite a lot of participants' narratives of not eating. So some described how they had been chastised as children for not finishing their plates, obviously, as lots of us have. And with those kind of lines of think of the starving children, that kind of keeps that kind of uh, image keeps coming up in interviews. And I started to think about this because people started to relate this to a need to not consume too much, which they then felt they were enacting through their anorexia. So in her interview, similarly, Juno likened her not eating to the 24-hour sponsored famine that World Vision used to do in the UK. I don't know if we still do it, but I remember doing it at school, where lots of people sponsor you not to eat for 24 hours. And it's in order to kind of... I'm not sure really what it is, but I guess it, that's a somatic alignment. It puts you in that space. And so Juno said that's exactly what, therefore, she felt she was doing. So recent work has illuminated how eating is an act that engenders webs of sociality across spatial and temporal distances. So um, Emma-Jane Abbott and I, for example, as Corinne mentioned, have written about how eating bodies are kind of subject to but entangled in a complex nexus of social and material relations whilst also active in their production. Um, and as such, engaging with moments of ingestion as encounters between bodies and worlds affords recognition of how, as we put it once, um, in the act of placing food in the mouth, landscapes, people, objects and imaginings not only juxtaposed with and fold into one another, but are also reconstituted and reordered. So this has kind of explored food as a substance that travels across distances, be those effective material or both. But Juno's words about the 24-hour famine Instead of it's the sociality of shared absence, how not eating may draw together or enfold bodies and persons across distances. And to borrow from Joan Tronto again's vocabulary of caring is that which maintains or repairs the world, which I think is quite a nice way of thinking about caring. And not eating is conceptualised by participants such as Juno as mobilising care where that is an engagement with others that seeks somehow to repair or maintain. It signifies an attentiveness forged through recognising the needs of those around us, as Toronto puts it. And it was Miller who most deeply expressed this, I've caught up my slides now, um, during her interview, because she talked about how her anorexia was very much an illness, she recognised this, and it was painful, and she suffered. But she also felt that it was very much a sort of testimony to the wrongness of the world, and all that extra speech marks doing there. Um, in so doing, she referred to the philosophy of Simone, is it Vile? Wheel? Vail. You can tell I haven't listened to the interview for a while. Um, so, and it was Vail herself who wrote about attention that it consists in suspending thought, leaving it available, empty, and ready to be entered by its object. And as such, together, testimony and attention articulate a sense of self-suspension that navigates between anorexia as self-protection and self-loss, which is what I looked at in terms of self-care earlier, while also intertwining these with the care of others. Miller recounted how she was told she was far too global by staff in the eating disorders unit in which I was conducting an ethnography. 
And the star felt that she needed to focus on herself. And she said, I know, I know, you know, I know it's not going to, my protest won't stop exploitation. Of course I know, she said, but I have to do this. It's my way of being. And it is perhaps as anorexia compromises conditions of possibility and the mingled kind of protection and engulfment that I talked about in relation to self-care, that caring for others offers a way of being oneself through the alternative becoming of mimesis. And as such, linking one's self-starvation to other suffering bodies across geographical distances also reinforces a particular modality of self-production. It allows anorexia to be reinforced by the body of this kind of imagined other. The illness thereby becomes at once a rather problematic, perhaps, uh, it becomes legitimised and moralised. And scholars have previously explored anorexia in relation to cultural discourses and morality, arguing that anorexics are misguided moralists, for example, as O'Connor and Van Estrick put it in 2008. And Simona Giordano, who's a philosopher who's done a lot of work around anorexia and treatment, she likewise suggested that eating disorders are the symptoms of ordinary morality which are just being taken seriously or more seriously than usual. Yet with a few exceptions, such discussions have tended to focus on the kind of wider cultural valuing of purity and lightness in a Euro-American context and where which anorexia kind of does that. But this is not quite what we're seeing in these narratives, I don't think. Here, instead, it's food itself and food food's lack itself, rather than the secondary effect of this on bodies that emerges as a moral choice, to borrow from Coveney. As self-starvation maps nascent forms of what we might term careful sociality, it becomes an attempt to meet the other morally. And this intersects with wider enactments of ethically con concerned consumption, whilst also framing not eating as a moral achievement, so it's situating itself in a very specific space. But participants drawing on a moral framework in this way is also performative. It serves not only to mime and mediate others, but it also produces them, mapping other bodies and other hungers over those of participants. And as such, the not eating of self-starving as a somatic modality of attending to the suffering of others enacts a kind of complex interplay of visibility and invisibility. And I think we saw this in Rashida's desire to be smaller than her ill father earlier, as her not eating kind of sought to nourish him by effacing her. And it, moreover, in this wider discussion of care in a global context, caring through not eating forges links between bodies based on suffering, and yet it seems only to recognise or perhaps to feel the suffering of the other's body and not one's own. So the other's body gains this kind of hyper-visibility while that of participants is maintained as peripheral, somehow lost to these narratives. And the doubledness and dualism in this is elucidated by turning to one participant, Michelle's slippers. So, Michelle says, wrote once, what can I say I ask about a slipper? Well, in the eating disorders unit, a lot was said about Michelle's slippers on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, they were very old, they were very worn, they had been stripy, but they weren't anymore, and her toes were coming through the ends. <coughs> um, and the staff kept trying to convince Michelle to buy a new pair of slippers. They kept sort of drawing her attention to their visual appearance, saying that they were uncared for, and therefore they were just kind of metonymic of the fact that she didn't care for herself, she didn't care for her body. So for, for staff, these slippers became this kind of symbol, they were indicative of this wider lack of self-care on Michelle's part. 
So they, they said, you know, her slippers were just a symptom of her anorexia, essentially. So by delinking Michelle's slippers from anything but her body and her illness through this paradigm of self-care, the clinic bound these together, seeing her neglect of her slippers as only anorexic. But Michelle felt that her slippers would do. She said she was only walking up and down corridors in the eating disorders unit. What did she need better slippers for? Which is a fair point. And so therefore she said um, if she, to replace them, therefore, where they still worked as slippers, as she put it, would be wasteful. And so articulating her wider ethic of care as not consuming too much, Michelle justified keeping her slippers. So to conceptualise Michelle's footwear only as symbolic of a lack of self-care enacted through not eating, as the clinic did, would privilege the visual narrative of her slippers and her body over that over her, um, her voice, basically. And this, perhaps, on the part of the conceptualiser, would be careless rather than careful. Yet the staff's discussions of Michelle's slippers have also highlighted a tension between embodiment and disembodiment that has resonated throughout this discussion of anorexia as a modality of caring for others and indeed oneself. On the one hand, it is clear that anorexia is about far more than a quest for corporal emaciation. Complex, relational, intimate practices of caring have shown the illness to be embodied and yet not so much about the body as a visual entity. As a profoundly somatic mode of attention to others that forges effective links through bodies and their suffering, anorexia is also paradoxically, paradoxically emerged as something that effaces the body and enacts dualism. The body is lost from these narratives. So as not eating as self-care and care of others is contrasted to a more clinical vision of not eating as a lack of self-care, we see how competing paradigms of care not only frame bodily materialities in diverging ways, but also interfere with these. So in her interview, Eva described the effects of starvation and what this had done to her body. She recounted bones so sharp that when she turned over in bed, she felt them scratching against her skin from within. And she described how her hair had fallen out and her skin dried to flakes. She said that before entering treatment, she had been so frightened that she was going blind because her vision had become blurred and she couldn't see in front of her. And here, the kind of real painful vulnerability of Eva's suffering body does seem to disrupt the caring for self or others performed by anorexia. Indeed, Joan Tronto has argued that in order to recognise the needs of others, one must first be attentive to one's own needs for care. Here then, as in Michelle's slippers perhaps, caring for others and self would seem to be difficult to align. But Eva said of this simply, well, the anorexia's got nothing to do with my body. And in this kind of simultaneous foregrounding of bodily suffering, and yet repudiating of the body as important to anorexia, Eva's felt corporal materiality is re reframed as outside that relationship between self and anorexia. This disallows her embodied suffering to disrupt her care, her ways of caring and her ways of being herself. So echoing Hadi's reconfigurations in relation to a felt loss of agency to anorexia earlier where she felt it to become too strong, here self-care and the care of others through anorexia are placed beyond the painful perimeters of the body. And this delinking of body and self importantly also demonstrates how diverging ways of caring about, for, through and within anorexia, all kind of converge. And this is because it allows Eva to engage in clinical treatment. 
seeking care for her bodily suffering whilst also holding on to her anorexia and its ways of caring for herself and others. She described in her interview feeling really grateful that the clinic had enforced her eating and thereby taken away her physical pain, but not her anorexia, she said. And we see thus how within the kind of intimacies of bodily depths, diverging paradigms of care coexist, and the caring perhaps always entails a negotiation of coexisting as well as competing goods, as Emery Moll has put it. Eva allows herself to be cared for in a way that she feels to maintain her anorexia and her selfhood. And that this permits the illness to continue mapping the space of the present in ways that care for Eva warrants recognition, I think, as we listen to her narrative. But at the same time, it perhaps does also suggest that anorexia's careful sociality may most of all often be with itself. So by tracing along some of the sharper edges of not eating and caring, I've sought today to kind of forge understandings, have a little think about how care, food and anorexia are all lived and felt, how they're all resisted and configured in ways that disrupt but very much also matter the intimacies of individual bodies, selves and everyday lives. <laughs>